It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines, a podcast from The Independent where we take a closer look at the stories dominating the news agenda around the world. I'm assistant editor at The Indie, Lucy McInerney, and I'll be your host today. Over the last few days, there's only been really one story in town, the US election and its ongoing fallout. On Saturday, the election was called for former Vice President Joe Biden, and a couple of hours after the announcement, President-elect Biden took to the outdoor stage in Wilmington, Delaware, to speak to his gathered supporters and acknowledge his victory. In this episode, however, we're going to rewind a few years to 2016, when then-real estate developer Donald J. Trump gave his victory speech in New York. I'm joined by our Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief John T. Bennett to discuss that speech, the intervening years since, and what to expect in the interregnum period until January 20th, when Vice President-elect Biden is inaugurated. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business. Complicated. Thank you very much. This was probably the most presidential we ever heard Trump uh, over the course of the four years that we've had since. Would you agree? I think it's definitely top five or top three moments when he's been presidential. We haven't and we haven't seen some things behind the scenes that that are are closed to the press uh, for any president. And I'm thinking about um, when, when he's gone to Dover Air Force Base, uh, when uh, the remains of, of fallen U.S. soldiers are brought back and the families are there. Um, I've been told by folks who have been in those rooms that that the president can actually show empathy and, and be presidential and, and listen to the family. So um, at least publicly, I think, yes, it was it was a top three presidential moment. Uh, but that is a, a very low bar as someone who's watched this from from day one, um, somewhat up close. Um, one thing to remember about the speech is it was it was written somewhat hastily early, uh, early on Wednesday morning, uh, the, you know, as midnight passed and, and finally he was declared the winner. Um, I've been told that that president that then president-elect Trump kind of went catatonic. He was in a room with some senior campaign folks and and of course his his children and, and their spouses and a few other folks. And he was he did not he he didn't expect uh, to win even on election night. And and uh, as we've all probably in big life moments gone a little catatonic um, as they were helping pull him together to address the country and the world, um, that's when the speech was written, and it, it mostly, you know, diverted back to that usual—I'll uh, call it a, a template, for lack of a better term. You know, he was magnanimous. Uh, he was even said some nice things about Hillary Clinton, which he certainly didn't at his campaign rallies four years ago. So there were reasons it sounded as conventional and as presidential as as we would hear him during his term. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. 
She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her and her family on a very, very hard-fought campaign. I mean, she, she fought very hard. He, he congratulated Hillary on, you know, hard-fought campaign, which was probably the first time that, um, and last time we heard him speak so so positively about her as an opponent. Um, and also, I thought it was it was notable that in the speech when he did mention Hillary and he did speak about her positively, none of the crowd took to the usual booing that you would you would come to expect from any form of Trump rally. Um, so it was kind of before. Trump and his followers had taken on the personality that they seem to have developed over the, the last four years. Hillary has worked very long and very hard over a long period of time, and we owe her a major debt of gratitude for her service to our country. I mean that very sincerely. I also thought it was, as you mentioned, interesting in terms of the magnanimity that he referred to the fact that um, then, you know, former Secretary of State Clinton had called to congratulate us, that he referred to the, he really stressed the word us and the fact that it was a, a team effort, a collective effort. Again, something which in the intervening years of many, many Trump rallies we've all witnessed, it's all turned back to more about what he does as an individual and how all of the success or any successes he, he might see it is down to his own um, personal success and not down to the spreading around of uh, a team achievement. It's it's always about Donald Trump uh, when Donald Trump is involved. That's for sure. Um, I, I will say this, and this is a collective media uh, critique, and and we shouldn't feel above critiques. What we do a lot of the time is is focus on Trump, and we should. He's a president for for sixty nine or, or sixty eight more days uh, until Joe Biden will be sworn in, and. If Trump's in the White House, the U.S. Marshals will make sure Trump is no longer in the White House. Um, he'll probably go to Mar-a-Lago before Christmas and never come back. And that way he avoids the embarrassment of, of being let out by the Marshal Service and, and the Secret Service. So, um, But what we do is, is we focus on the president, again, rightfully so. But we forget about not just his core supporters who we see at these rallies wearing his gear and cheering wildly and and chanting things that make for good headlines and, and, and people click on it on both sides of the aisle. And, and, you know, that, that's, that, that, that's news. Uh, we have to give the people what they want, but this is also about the other folks, the folks who don't go to Trump rallies. He got 63 million votes last time. He's on track to get 73 million votes. So while we, while we focus on Donald Trump, when you listen to a speech or any of his rally spiels, or anything he's ever said in the Oval with pool sprays, remember how many people support him. There is something real in this country that he tapped into. David Bossy, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, they saw it first, they took it to Donald Trump, they showed it to him, and then he exploited it. It is about Donald Trump and everything he's done, but this is not going away. This still lives in American society beyond January 20th. So I, I, I think, and, and the media, the media sometimes, I think we lose sight of that. And I think as we listen to this and what the president said back then, uh, just to remember that, that, that he tapped into something that is very real and is very much still alive. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be president for all Americans. And this is so important to me. For those who have chosen 
not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people. I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. As I've said from the beginning, ours was not a campaign, but rather an incredible and great movement made up of millions of hardworking men and women who love their country and want a better, brighter future for themselves and for their family. It was interesting that he said in, in that speech, ours was not a campaign, but an incredible and great movement. And, you know, what you've described is obviously, yes, he's, 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 he has started a great movement, what people are starting to refer to as Trumpism. Do you think that the Republican Party is now basically Trumpism? Or do you think that there's going to be an opportunity for um, conservatives who have maybe felt disenchanted with Trump's leadership uh, to come back to the party and, and re-establish their own autonomy away from Trump Trumpism? Can I say uh, both? I, I, I cover politicians and we criticize them when they say everything at once. But um, for now, I think it is probably uh, an answer of kind of 1A and 1B, the first being that that Trump will remain the most vocal and most powerful person in the party after January 20th. Uh, I mean, that was certainly the case for, for Barack Obama, even though we knew someone else would eventually be the Democratic, um, be the Democratic nominee. And as Joe Biden said before the election, as the nominee, I am the Democratic Party right now. So eventually, it, it, you know, if Trump does not opt to run again in, in 2024, someone else will be at least the nominal leader of the party. There are certainly those already gunning uh, to be that person, and they are trying to, sorry, they're trying to, to get in the Trump lane, so to speak. You, folks like uh, Christy Nome, the, uh, the governor of South Dakota, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, former uh, um, American ambassador to the United Nations under Trump. I think we'll definitely see Mike Pence. Um, he already has tried to get in that lane by just standing by the president through it all. Um, the list goes on. So, so you'll have Trump being the most powerful person as others continue trying to get in that Trump lane and get that Trump voter. And they're all waiting to see uh, what the soon to be former president does in 2024, because he will be he, he will be the kingmaker or he'll try to make himself the, the, the king of the Republican Party again. Every single American will have the opportunity to realize his or her fullest potential. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. He was speaking out to the forgotten men and women of the United States who would be forgotten no longer, which I think we can all agree is, is very true. You know, we had in 2016 people turning out to vote for, for Donald Trump who had never really engaged in the, de in the democratic process much before, never used their vote. And again, as you say, they've, we've seen, I think, largest voter turnout, if not ever, in, in a very long time in, in the 2020 election with, with not only... Um, Donald Trump receiving the um, 
the, the astonishing figure of 73 million votes, but Joe Biden receiving the highest number of votes in the popular vote for um, a president-elect. Um, what is it you think that the Democrats could do to try and appeal to those kind of so-called forgotten men and women who, um, is there any option for or, or what avenue open to the Democrats to, to convert those forgotten men and women as they may think of themselves away from Trumpism and into the Democratic fold? I think that's a that's an uphill climb. One thing that some Democrats are already talking about is uh, a big jobs bill that would be targeted, um, you know, really hard for blue collar, uh, blue collar workers and, and the middle class. That's a start. Um, I think Democrats also need to be wary of their progressive wing. If, if the goal now, if the goal is to bring back some of those blue collar workers, I don't think, um, I don't, I don't think, you know, fully embracing the Green New Deal or 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 giving Bernie Sanders or or, or AOC, um, you know, giving them a bull a, a bullhorn for the next four years or the next two years, we'll have congressional elections in in less than two years. So, blue collar workers and and those kind of those middle class. Uh, white voters who again voted for Trump or, or voted for Trump this time they didn't. That's interesting. Um, didn't last time. You know they, they're turned off by that progressive agenda, and this is what Joe Biden is going to have to do along with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They're going to have to find ways to pursue and pass legislation that keeps the the liberal part of their voting base excited and and tries to win back. Uh, some of that blue collar vote because they have a real chance in two years to take the Senate and and to have you know, a bigger majority than than the one vote it looks like they may get this time. So that I, I, I think, you know, finding more common sense ways to at least talk about that progressive agenda. It, it could be the packaging here and AOC herself has has said that, that that the Democrats just need to get better at the messaging and the packaging uh, of some of those more liberal policies, and and that's really going to be the challenge for Joe Biden, and and that will also affect you know whether he decides to run again or whether he gets reelected, um, but th the pressures within the Democratic Party are going to be fascinating to watch uh, over the next two years. There's going to be a real uh, we I can't call it a civil war yet, but but we're getting close. We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure, which will become, by the way, second to none. And we will put millions of our people to work as we rebuild it. I mean, has he done any of that? Has, has or have there been huge wins in terms of improve improval of people's lives through literally not having to deal with potholes on the highway as they drive to work, or not having an issue with schools falling down around their children's heads, or hospitals being um, able to cope with obviously the much higher numbers of people that are using them now because of the pandemic? A uh, short answer is no. They the two parties agree on. As I've been told by, by infrastructure experts um, on, from both parties, the, the, the two parties, and, and including the Trump White House, they agree on 80% of 
the projects that need to be done. They agree on even how the funding should be divvied up amongst states and, and municipalities. But what they don't agree on, and this will not change when Joe Biden walks into the White House on January 20th, they don't agree on how to pay for it. Uh, Donald Trump did. Donald Trump and his team did not invent this Republican notion of a public-private funding plan to rebuild the infrastructure and the hospitals and, and, and airports and everything. You know, they want to do a 70-30 private-public split, um, which Democrats dismiss and say isn't realistic because you'll never get enough private funding. And Democrats probably have a point on that. And uh, Republicans shoot back that Democrats would have to raise taxes to pay uh, to pay for an infrastructure rebuild um, that they've proposed. And Republicans probably have a point on that. The two parties have been stuck there since before Donald Trump became president. And it's just hard to see. It's hard to see how they get there, how they're incentivized to get there um, when, you know, control of the Senate's going to be up in two years and, and the White House will very much be in play in four years because you're handing the other guy a victory. And, and we've sunk so low in our politics that, you know, you can't even shake hands and say we did this together because Fox News and MSNBC will, will, will portray one party as a bunch of sellouts. We will also finally take care of our great veterans. We've been so loyal and I've gotten to know so many over this 18 month journey. The time I've spent with them during this campaign has been among my greatest honors. Our veterans are incredible people. We will embark upon a project of national growth and renewal. I will harness the creative talents of our people and we will call upon the best and brightest to leverage their tremendous talent for the benefit of all. It's going to happen. Veterans are, I suppose, as, as you've acknowledged already, you know, he has managed to be presidential when dealing in a, in a, in a private capacity um, with the families of, say, uh, those members of the armed services who have lost their lives um, in, in the course of their work. But I mean, he then also did get into to trouble with those five-star families. I mean, I think at one point he accused five-star families of potentially infecting him with COVID. So where, what exactly did he manage to achieve for veterans? Well, he, you know, the president says um, that he basically invented this, uh, the VA choice, as it's known, which gives veterans uh, exactly that, more choice in their federal health care uh, plans. But um, that's not exactly true. Uh, the Obama administration had probably more to do with that than anyone else. Um, now, what has the president done? He's, uh, he's kept U.S. troops mostly out of, um, of these, these post-9-11 wars that are very unpopular, which they're growing. They, they became unpopular here. But let's not forget uh, they're very unpopular in places like the U.K. So... Um, the president, that is a, that I will go out uh, as someone who, who has an advanced degree in, in security studies and covered national security for 13 years. That is an achievement. And that is something the president did for U.S. troops. He didn't get them killed. We have a great economic plan. We will double our growth and have the strongest economy anywhere in the world. At the same time, 
we will get along with all other nations willing to get along with us. We will be. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but that, that's such a Trumpian <laughs> statement that it, you get you got me. You got me. You got a chuckle there. I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's highly Trumpian, isn't it? It's, you know, I mean, it's 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 him <laughs> saying I am more than happy to do what I can here, but basically it's everyone else's fault if it doesn't go swimmingly well. So I think it's fair to say, isn't it? He has revolutionized America's relations with, say, China and Russia more than any um, recent president, whilst also um, that definitely flipping on its head uh, relations with with all other nations. I mean, from, you know, mm-hmm. withdrawing from the WHO and, um, you know, casting aspersions negatively on the funding of things like NATO and involvement in the UN. What exactly do you make of, of it all from where you sit in DC in terms of, say, foreign policy, how the US is viewed internationally mm-hmm. and, and, and the US's place as a superpower amongst what is, let's be honest, a shifting sands in terms of the mm-hmm. world superpowers in general? Yeah, as you alluded to, uh, how is America viewed around the world? Uh, short answer, not well. And, you know, Joe Biden was uh, heavily involved in, in foreign policy matters. He was He's a former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, as vice president, uh, you know, he was at times kind of a second secretary of state because he had relationships with other world leaders and, and he had contacts around the world and, and he knew the challenges and the issues and and, uh, you know, there's a reason, despite what President Trump says, that Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, was in the Ukraine uh, and was pressing for the, for the prosecutor that was involved in the, in the impeachment uh, matter. Uh, there was a reason he was there. And, and that's going to be something that I think we're going to see Biden jump on quickly. I think we'll see several foreign trips in the first, uh, in the first few months. So I, I would expect to see him pop up uh, uh, over there in London with you guys, and and that probably would be the first trip. But President Trump, at, kind of at a staggering rate, really, right? Um, just burned relationship after relationship. Uh, and again, a lot of times, if if he heard about or was told about or probably saw on Fox, uh, Angela Merkel or or uh, Justin Trudeau say something even lightly critical of something he had tweeted or said then, you know, no more trade deal or we're pulling out of out of the Iran nuclear deal. And but a lot of that was also about Barack Obama, the the Iran pulling out of the Iran deal had as much to do about Barack Obama as alleged uh, Iranian compliance or shenanigans. So, you know, I, I will will get less of an identity and dare I say insecurity driven U.S. foreign policy. It'll be a return to, to the Obama foreign policy where allies matter and a belief in international institutions then, and that, you know, a coalition of countries can put pressure on Vladimir Putin um, better than, than a European coalition that lacks the, the United States. But I will, one thing about China, um, you know, Biden's Biden is going to be, Biden's probably coming in frustrated with China because when the Obama folks left, uh, my reporting showed they were plenty frustrated with China. Uh, President Trump is leaving office plenty frustrated with China. So some things never change. After, you know, that section, I suppose that you could say was the closest part to uh, uh, a, a policy section of the speech. He then turned to, you know, a protracted section of, of, of thank yous. Look at all of these people. 
and Kellyanne and Chris and Rudy and Steve and David. We have got we have got tremendously talented people up here, and I want to tell you, it's been it's been very very special. I want to give a very special thanks to our former mayor Rudy Giuliani. Who's unbelievable, unbelievable. He traveled with us and he went through meetings. And see that Rudy never changes. Where's Rudy? Where is he? Rudy. Governor Chris Christie, folks, was unbelievable. Thank you, Chris. The first man, first senator, first major, major politician, and let me tell you, he is highly respected in Washington because he's as smart as you get. Senator Jeff Sessions. Where's Jeff? interesting to look back on now isn't it from mm -hmm. from trump the, the 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 people that he he name checked in it who you know i've made a note of just three here because they're now i suppose um conspicuous in their absence from the administration who are chris christie um jeff sessions and of course ryan's previous um I, I looked it up earlier and i saw i found a piece of research from the brookings institute which said that um president trump's four-year tenure has seen a 90 percent turnover in um, its headcount, uh, both not just limited to the cabinet, just throughout the entire administration. Now, it was the highest turnover of any um, presidential administration, with um, the Reagan administration coming in about second, with roughly about 78, Clinton on about 75% turnover. So, you know, he was definitely uh, a divisive character and never, ever shy of cutting ties with people. No, certainly not. Uh, that rate just grows it seems like yeah, the the brookings folks um started that you know in the the first few months when we saw some some departures early on you know that's a, a turnover rate like that especially at the top I, I think they break it down further and especially at the top it's really high it's no way to govern but the goal has never been governing the goal has been to get donald trump reelected. Mm. so yeah, he's never been much of a delegator. If if you look at his business career, and you know he's been, especially the big decisions, he was always at the center of those because he's been so worried about how others perceive him. So he's not going to delegate a big decision that he you know he may mostly disagree with uh, doing it as as other CEOs sometimes will disagree, but they go along, they listen to their experts, and and they they make that call anyway. Uh, Trump's never been that way, and that's never been the way this administration operated. You know, he's not a Barack Obama, uh, or I think we're going to see a, a President Biden, uh, who they have countless meetings after meetings. They chew on things, they mull it up in the residence at night. Uh, Obama played golf and thought about it more over the weekend before having three more meetings the next week in the Situation Room, and then one-on-ones with senators, and then more golf. Um, you know, Trump. Trump makes the decision when he feels he has just enough information about how it's going to to affect him, his reelection, how he's portrayed. So the turnover rate is 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 just amazing. Um, but again, this has never been about good government. And I promise you that I will not let you down. We will do a great job. We will do a great job. I look very much 
forward to being your president. And hopefully at the end of two years or three years or four years, or maybe even eight years, you will say, so many of you worked so hard for us, but you will say that, you will say that that was something that you were really were very proud to do. And, and I can thank you very much. And I can only say that while the campaign is over, our work on this movement is now really just beginning. I think it was, it was an interesting way that he finished up that, uh, his, his, his victory speech that night that said, you know, we will do, we will do a great job. And I suppose, as you say, um, 73 million people seem to have agreed with him that he has, he has done, done a good job. Um, I think what it, well, a lot of people are interested in, in knowing about now, and I, I kind of alluded to it in the introduction, is this, this interregnum period that we're in now, you know, between knowing the results of the election, which obviously the Republicans seem steadfast in, in, in insisting they're going to uh, question um, in several states. But um, what, what, what exactly, what realistically can the president do between now and the 20th of January when we will uh, hopefully be seeing a Biden inauguration? He can uh, definitely make things very difficult in terms of uh, access to classified information. It doesn't look like the Biden folks are going uh, to get very much of that, if any of that. Now, uh, a catch to that is they might be able to slyly get some of that through back channels. Um, I think what what kind of keeping that spigot to to information, and I'm talking about you know classified cables from from diplomats and, and classified reports from intelligence uh, officers around the world to, to find out, okay, what, what does the CIA really think about this latest move by President Putin or President Xi of China? But I think what this forces Biden to do, at least initially, is really pull folks into his administration with decades of experience who have contacts that are career folks working at the Pentagon, working at State Department, working at the CIA and other places. Um, you know, they can chat someone up, hopefully socially distance over coffee on a Saturday morning and, uh, or, or pull them in for an official meeting under the transition office. Uh, there are ways to, to get a picture uh, of what's going on. But also, if you go with those really experienced people, they can be brought up to speed faster than if, if you rolled the dice on this freshman congressperson who has just shown a lot of promise and a lot of smarts. So I think we're going to see a very experienced team come in, at least for the first two years. You know, folks always leave, as, as Trump said, folks always leave. But um, that's what it really forces, I think, is to really bring a lot of those Obama folks back. And even some of those Clinton folks that, um, that were young then, might not be so young now, but um, just to, to shorten that learning curve, because they're going to have a big one. Uh, Trump can also fire people. He's already been doing that at the Pentagon and other places. Uh, but you run out of you run out of folks to fire. Uh, and at some point, um, again, I, I think another thing the president can do to avoid embarrassment is just head to Florida and and work from there. And I am using quote fingers. You can't listeners can't see that. Um, and at some point, maybe he just stops filing lawsuits. Uh, for the challenge of the election, which are being thrown out at, at a daily rate by federal judges. And we could see Mike Pence um, kind of fill in for some of the ceremonial stuff on Inauguration Day and 
maybe have tea or coffee with the Bidens. And maybe Biden just takes a train down from Wilmington, Delaware, like he used to uh, when he was a senator. And Union Station is literally two football fields from uh, from the Capitol. So it would be a short motorcade or even a short stroll if he wanted, if the Secret Service would agree to that. Maybe he and Pence uh, could walk to the Capitol or something. So there are ways to do this. Uh, I I know there's a lot of a lot of worry about what Trump can do. Maybe some more executive orders on health care or abortion policy or something like that. But but Biden can can undo those on day one or day three. So what Trump can do is limited here. He's his powers get less and less as the days go. I know there's a lot of worry, but um, I see no reason why Joe Biden will not be sworn in around noon on January 20th and the usual parade and, and he'll walk into the White House and he will start signing executive orders um, shortly after sundown. And so, you know, there's been an awful lot of talk from from Trump over the years, less so in the immediately recent um, weeks and months, but of, of draining the swamp. Um, and, hmm. and there was a lot of talk around how a lot of, say, um, uh, civil service jobs were left vacant that would normally be um, appointees from the president's um, administration. There was the example, you know, Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, went into great detail around how the Department of Energy was just left to kind of wither on the vine, despite its huge responsibility for oversight of, you know, nuclear safety globally and all this kind of thing. I mean, is this all stuff that you imagine um, President-elect Biden um, kicking back up a gear and making sure that um, we're back to, to where we were pre November 2016, or I should say probably January 2017, when, when President Trump was actually inaugurated. They're already doing that. Uh, reports are, and a couple of folks I've, I've uh, talked to, uh, they are keenly aware of some of the deficiencies that have existed. Um, and like you said, the Department of Energy, they oversee nuclear safety. And for some reason, the Trump administration um, thought that wasn't as important as as every Republican and Democratic administration in the history of the country has thought. Uh, that was an interesting one they picked. Um, so, yeah, the Biden team, they, they know where the flaws are. Again, they have contacts, especially those career government employees who have been there for 20 years or longer. Um, they've been talking. They're friends. Their kids grew up together. They still know each other. And so they know where all the problems are, or most of them. Um, and, and they're already behind the scenes uh, coming up with plans on, on how to, uh, to remedy some of these issues as quickly as possible. It will take time. This will not be a quick fix. As, as I hear myself talk about an experienced team very likely coming in, uh, government moves slowly here. Uh, bureaucracy takes time. I'm sure the, the Trump folks will leave bureaucratic loopholes and maybe rewrite agency rules that the Biden folks will then have to spend months uh, putting back the way they were before. Um, I would expect us and other outlets will be writing about some dirty tricks like that or dirty tricks from the Biden team's perspective. But, you know, by sometime next year, um, I, I think they'll be able to at least put some patchwork on this and, and, and the government will function a lot like it did 
uh, under President Obama, but but it, it will take some time. Finally, about Donald Trump himself and, and post the 20th of January. I mean, we've got Cyrus Vance Jr., Manhattan's district attorney, um, Letitia James, New York's attorney general, both pursuing criminal potential criminal charges related to his business affairs before he took office. And obviously any pre- presidential power, which the we should say President Trump is not prevented from giving to himself, would uh, would excuse him from anything on a federal level. At a state's level, of course, um, Ms. James and, and, and Mr. Vance Jr. are both free to pursue him at a, a state level from his business dealings in New York. Do you think that the president could go to prison? I, I think this is the single most fascinating question that, that, that we won't know about until... Uh, the plane that looks like Air Force One, but will be tagged Executive One uh, if he doesn't leave until January 20th, at least. Um, or perhaps uh, cameras across the street from Mar-a-Lago on the evening of, of January 20th captures some, uh, some Suburbans going in that are not Secret Service Suburbans. They may have uh, agents, uh, FBI agents from the Southern District of New York who would like to speak with the president. I think this is the big question. Um, how much deference would a Biden DOJ give to a former president out of not respect for the man, but respect for the office? And um, how much do they worry about setting a precedent of any little thing in an ex-president's background that a Department of Justice of a president elected of the other party to replace him because we've become so tribal and, and frankly, just kind of nasty in our politics. Um, you know, would a Republican president following a Democratic president like Clinton reopen the Whitewater real estate investigation, for instance, just out of spite and just to fire up his own base? And then the flip goes for, for a Democratic president um, following maybe a former businessman down the road who's a Republican president. So I think Biden is a thoughtful guy and and he's going to have, he, as you see here, he has a ton of things that he personally is going to have to decide. This will come down to what Joe Biden wants to do. Now, he'll get recommendations, um, but how far they go, I think, comes down to what Biden wants to do as he thinks about the future of the country and the precedence that that would set. Joe Biden may very well think that that Donald Trump deserves to die in prison but they pursue house arrest or something. John, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, and thank you all for listening. That's it for this week's episode. A reminder to our listeners that there's also a new email newsletter inside Washington you can sign up for to get all of the latest news and insight delivered straight to your inbox every single day. There's more information on our website, www.independent.co.uk. Please subscribe to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen, and leave us a rating so more people can find us. Thanks to you all again for listening.